Chapter Five of the Morgesons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Morgesons by Elizabeth Stoddard. Chapter Five. The next September we moved. Our new house was large and handsome. On the south side there was nothing between it and the sea except a few feet of sand. No tree, no shrub intercepted the view. To the eastward, a promontory of rocks jutted into the sea, serving as a pier against the wash of the tide, and adding a picturesqueness to the curve of the beach. On the north side flourished an orchard, which was planted by Grandfather Locke. Looking over the treetops from the upper north windows, one would have no suspicion of being in the neighborhood of the sea. From these windows, in winter, we saw the nimbus of the northern light. The darkness of our sky, the stillness of the night, mysteriously reflected the perpetual condition of its own solitary world. In summer, ragged white clouds rose above the horizon, as if they had been torn from the sky of an underworld, to sail up the blue heaven, languish away, or turn livid with thunder and roll off seaward. Between the orchard and the house, a lawn sloped easterly to the border of a brook, which straggled behind the outhouses into a meadow, and finally lost itself among the rocks on the shore. Up by the lawn, a willow hung over it, and its outer bank was fringed by the tangled, wild grape, sweet briar, and alder bushes. The premises, except on the seaside, were enclosed by a high wall of rough granite. No houses were near us on either side of the shore, up the north road, they were scattered at intervals. Mother said I must be considered a young lady, and should have my own room. Veronica was to have one opposite, divided from it by a wide passage. This passage extended beyond the angle of the stairway, and was cut off by a glass door. A wall ran across the lower end of the passage. Half the house was beyond its other side, so that when the door was fastened, Veronica and myself were in a cul-de-sac. The establishment was put on a larger footing. Mrs. Hepsy Curtis was installed mistress of the kitchen. Temperance declared that she could not stand it, that she wasn't a nigger, that she must go. But she had no home and no friends, nothing but a wood lot, which was left her by her father, the miller. As the trees thereon grew, promising to make timber, its value increased. At present, her income was limited to the profit from the annual sale of a quarter or two of wood. So she stayed on, in spite of Hepsy. There were also two men for the garden and stable. A boy was always attached to the house. Not the same boy, but a boy dynasty, for as soon as one went, another came, who ate a great deal, a crime in Hepsy's eyes, and whose general duty was to carry armfuls of wood, pails of milk or swill, and to shut doors. We had many visitors. Though father had no time to devote to guests, he was continually inviting people for us to entertain, and his invitations were taken as a matter of course and finally for granted. A rich Morganson was a new feature in the family annals, and distant relations improved the advantage offered them by coming to spend the summer with us, because their own houses were too hot, or in winter because they were too cold infirm old ladies, who were not related to us, but who had nowhere else to visit, came, 
as his business extended, our visiting list extended. The captains of his ships, whose homes were elsewhere, brought their wives to be inconsolable with us after their departure on their voyages. We had ministers often, who always quarter at the best houses, and chance visitors to dinner and supper, who made our house a way-station. There was but small opportunity to cultivate family affinities. Somebody was always sitting in the laps of our Larrys and Penates. Another class of visitors deserving notice were those who preferred to occupy the kitchen and back chambers, humbly proud and bashfully arrogant people, who kept their hats and bonnets by them, and small bundles, to delude themselves and us with the idea that they had not come to stay, and had no occasion for any attention. These people criticized us with insinuating severity, and proposed amendments with unrelenting affability. To this class Veronica was most attracted. It propelled me. Consequently she was petted, and I was amiably sneered at. This period of our family life has left small impression of dramatic interest. There was no development of the sentiments, no betrayal of the fluctuations of the passions which must have existed. There was no accident to reveal, no coincidence to surprise us. Hidden among the powers that be, which rule New England, lurks the deity of the illicit. This deity never obtained sovereignty in the atmosphere where the Morgansons lived. Instead of the impression which my after-experience suggests to me to seek, I recall arrivals and departures, an eternal smell of cookery, a perpetual changing of beds, and the small talk of vacant minds. Despite the rigours of Hepsy in the kitchen, and the careful supervision of temperance, there was little systematic housekeeping. Mother had severe turns of planning and making rules, falling upon us in whirlwinds of reform, shortly allowing the band of habit to snap aback, and we resumed our former condition. She had no assistance from father in her ideas of change. It was enough for him to know that he had built a good house to shelter us, and to order the best that could be brought for us to eat and wear. He liked, when he went where there were fine shops, to buy and bring home handsome shawls, bonnets and dresses, wholly unsuited in general to the style and taste of each of us, but much handsomer than were needful for Surrey. They answered, however, as patterns for the plainer materials of our neighbours. He also bought books for us, recommended by their covers or the opinion of the bookseller. His failing was to buy an immense quantity of everything he fancied. "'I shall never have to buy this thing again,' he would say. "'Let us have enough.' Veronica and I grew up ignorant of practical or economical ways. We never saw money, never went shopping. Mother was indifferent in regard to much of the business of ordinary life, which children are taught to understand. Father and mother both stopped at the same point with us, but for a different reason. Father, because he saw nothing beyond the material, and mother, because her spiritual insight was confused and perplexing. But whatever a household may be, the destinies spin the web to their will, put of the threads which drop hither and thither, floating in its atmosphere, white, black, or grey. From the time we moved, however, we were a stirring, cheerful family, independent of each other. But spite of our desultory tastes, mutual habits were formed. When the want of society was felt, 
we sought the dining-room, sure of meeting others with the same want. This room was large and central, connecting with the halls, kitchen, and mother's room. It was a caravansary, where people dropped in and out on their way to some other place. Our most public moments were during mealtime. It was known that father was at home at breakfast and supper, and could be consulted. As he was away at our noonday dinner, generally we were the least disturbed then, and it was a lawless, irregular, and unceremonious affair. Mother established her armchair here, and a stand for her work-basket. Hepsy and Temperance were at hand, the men came for orders, and it was convenient for the boy to transmit the local intelligence it was his vocation to collect. The windows commanded a view of the sea, the best in the house. This prospect served Mother for exercise. Her eyes roved over it when she wanted a little out-of-doors life. If she desired more variety, which was seldom, she went to the kitchen. After we moved, she grew averse to leaving the house, except to go to church. She never quitted the dining-room after our supper till bedtime, because father rarely came from Milford, where he went on bank days, and indeed almost every other day till late, and she liked to be by him while he ate his supper and smoked a cigar. All except Veronica frequented this room, but she was not missed or inquired for. She liked the parlour, because the piano was there. As soon as father had bought it, she astonished us by a persistent fingering of the keys, which produced a feeble melody. She soon played all the airs she had heard. When I saw what she could do, I refused to take music lessons, for while I was trying to learn the white cockade, she pushed me away, played it, and made variations upon it. I pounded the keys with my fist by way of a farewell, and told her she should have the piano for her own. End of chapter 5. Recording by Julia Lenarden.